when you have a complex situation, slow is fast. We often get triggered emotionally and get excited and the adrenaline pumps and we want to get into something fast. But what happens is we don't slow it down enough to think clearly enough to then plan enough to actually make sure that the first actions we take are the right actions. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. Today, I am speaking with Sally Foley-Lewis, who transforms middle managers into the leaders others willingly follow. Sally helps middle managers move or improve. Sally's background is diverse, to say the least, from being a recreation officer in a psychiatric hospital to the CEO of a major youth program, plus living in Germany, the Middle East, and even Outback Australia. All this positions Sally perfectly to help people managers be productive, confident, and courageous. She's a multi-award winning global professional speaker and has also authored multiple books. Sally tells me the drive to support and skill managers comes from her own CEO and senior leadership experiences. Sally Foley-Lewis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you join us. Oh, Suzanne, I can't wait to talk complex. (laughs) If only our listeners could have seen your face then. (laughs) (laughs) Evil grinning and snirking and and giggling. (laughs) Definitely. So, Sally, what's something about you most people wouldn't know? It's so funny. One of, one of the, my first impression when I read that question was that I hate these questions because I just don't know. And then I thought about it for a moment thinking from the perspective of, I don't know, I'm an open book, ask me anything. Then I realized only just a week or so ago, uh, a friend of mine said, we're in a conversation and she said, yeah, but Sal, you know, you play your cards close to your chest. And I was, I was sideswiped with that comment because I didn't think that I did. I never at all thought that I was, um, withholding any information or that I played my cards close to my chest. I definitely don't play poker because I've got the most expressive face on the planet. You know exactly what I'm thinking when you look at me, which can be good and very, very bad. So um, what's something about you that most people wouldn't know is um, I found out something that I didn't even know, you know, it's good <laughs> feedback that I play apparently my cards, cards close to my chest. So that's not really answering the question, but it's the best I can do right now. But it's great that you're willing to share that recent insight about yourself with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Sally, you've had a really interesting background. You've worked in a really broad range of roles and countries Mm -hmm. and really curious about how cultural differences might have required you to really change your approach as a leader given the different places that you've worked in. Yes, yeah, so, so I've been to, and even, you know, funny you say different countries, but even inside my own home country, 
from, um, you know, I've lived in Sydney and Brisbane and I've also lived in central Queensland and so outback, rural, remote, and even that has cultural differences and there's an us and a them element. There's also the language element, sometimes in Australia, sometimes (laughs) outside of Australia. Um, Those who are Australian will get that really bad joke. Um, But also the thing that I think required of me was to find the neutral point of who I am, not the extreme of who I am. Uh, Particularly when I was living in the Middle East, it was what's the neutral version of my accent? What's the neutral version of my comedy and my humour? What's the, the neutral version of my approach to things, particularly initially as I was trying to find my fit in that culture? And, um, I would, that served me well in most cases. After a while, I would have, particularly one or two people who I got really close with would say to me, is this what you're like back home in Australia? And I would say, no, I'm a little more Australian in, in, you know, air quotes. Um, (laughs) And then they'd say, like, what? And then, of course, my Australian accent would come out and I'd just throw it, you know, I would throw it and exaggerate it. However, as an example, you know, I would say, look, I found being neutral to start with and and being, I'm still myself, but it's my neutral version of myself was one of the biggest things I found helped me to then feel okay about finding my way in those cultures. So I don't know if that's a really good or clear answer, but it was how that sort of landed for me. Yeah. I find that really interesting because I'm working with a client at the moment where we're doing a lot of work around authentic leadership. Mm. And the concept that we've been using there is it's about being yourself, but doing it with more skill. Oh, I like that. And and, and no part of it is not yourself, but you know yourself. You bring different versions of you to different scenarios. Mm. How you speak to your best friend after a couple of opinion juices is not how you speak to your grandmother, which is not how you speak to your boss, Mm. you know, or your team. So, yeah. So it's about being very aware of that situation that you're in Mm. and being yourself but adapting it to really suit that situation. And also I think one of the things, so an example of living in the Middle East was that um, I had a friend who refused to change her attire for the environment and she would have, she would say to me, well, you always cover up too much. And I said, well, okay, me, this is how I would dress back in Australia anyway, but it also I'm not hung up on something like this when I know that it's, you know, I'm going to lean towards getting more covered up because I'm not attached to how I dress and I'm not attached to um, it as a, as a, the only identifier of who I am, particularly when I'm in someone else's country, particularly when it's in a culture that does identify with a national dress in a certain way. And I'm not making her wrong and me right. She's identifying you know, clothing and her fashion and and that helps her to identify with herself. And so that was something that she needs to reconcile for herself. But for me, and for those of you who have seen me, you know, I'm not exactly a fashionista. So, you know, um, I'm not, I'm not attached to that. Mm -hmm. So it was making sure that, okay, well, this isn't an issue for me, but I'm also mindful that in this culture, which is not my culture, it's not my home country. Um, 
I would like to be respectful and learn. And so um, covering up more was sort of a no-brainer. You know, what are the no-brainers to reduce the friction here? Mm. And I know I've seen a wonderful image of you on social media too, (laughs) Sally, where it makes me just think of you're someone who is really prepared to meet clients where they're at and um, where you've worn the the burqa back here in Australia doing the virtual training, you're beaming out to the Middle East. So it's just a lovely reminder of how important it is to meet people where where they are at and and to make them feel comfortable. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it, it again, what are you what are you attaching to it and and who's it for? You know, who mm. in I stand in service and so that's a big big value for me. And so to me that reflects me being in service. Yeah. Mm. And Sally, you currently specialize in helping middle managers with their self-leadership. So why do you think that's just so essential for middle managers? I, I, it's funny that this self-leadership is the, the current sort of buzz at the moment, but also I think I've always been a huge advocate for middle managers. Um, I think they get a bad rap and it's become even more visible at the moment, thank you, COVID, because of this remote, this hybrid, this work from home, whatever you want to call it, and then pile on top of it the quiet quitting or the loud Zooming or whatever other issue you want to add to that. You know, it's, I think what's come, become very, very clear is that middle managers have been ignored and unloved and, um, you know, <laughs> copying the blame for other levels decisions for a very long time. Mm. And they haven't been getting the development they need. And I've always been a huge advocate for middle management because I've been in that role and I've also been in every other role in an organisation, including a a CEO. So I've seen middle management also from every vantage point. So I love working with middle managers if I have not already made that abundantly clear. (laughs) Um, So let's just ram that point home five more times. The reason why self-leadership has been a, a piece that I've worked on recently is because when I've been running leadership programs with middle managers, almost every single time a question comes up or an issue comes up that highlights this need for let's start with self-leadership. And I firmly believe that great leadership starts with self-leadership. And if we don't understand who we are from our values through to our emotional intelligence, through to um, our self-image, our self-talk, through to the way in which we communicate, through the way in which our communication style impacts others, through to, um, you know, how we see ourselves in the organization and, and how willing we are to speak up or take a seat at the table, then all that foundational work that sits in sort of the self-leadership and then bleeding into the general leadership, mm. if we don't get that foundational stuff right, it shows up. And let's face it, we've got enough examples in our recent history to show us where self-leadership has been a little lacking, so to speak. Yes, yes. Without naming any names. Yeah. And I like the idea that how can you lead others if you can't lead yourself? 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I think that um, 
And and then, you know, the question might be going through some people's minds because I know this has come through and I've been challenged on this, but, you know, but doesn't that mean I have to be all vulnerable? Doesn't that mean I have to be all soft? And I'm thinking this is one of the hardest parts of your journey. So mm-hmm. this will toughen you up. This will not soften you up, um, but in the right ways. And I also think that if you are not a lifelong learner as a leader, then you are leaving so much behind and so much on the table and you will be such an empty vessel for the people that you want to lead that productivity and profits and um, a whole range of other elements in an organisation will suffer for it. So I I just fully believe that there's nothing easy about self-leadership and it's not about being vulnerable. You don't have to – you don't have to – Okay, I'm going to be a bit gross here. You don't have to vomit your journey all over social media, right? Yeah. You can do this journey, um, you know, internally but maybe with a coach or a mentor. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a public thing. But the outcome of it will be seen and respected and 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 ad- probably admired by, by many. Mm-hmm. Well, non-selective sharing of vulnerabilities can actually really undermine people's confidence in you as well, can't it? When you're a middle manager, it's really learning how to exercise some judgment about, <laughs> is this something that's actually going to help other people and encourage them to share appropriate things with me? Or is it actually going to make them wonder, oh, um, and, you know, I don't really know, have confidence that they know what they're doing. But then Mm. that leads on to that whole other risk as a middle manager of wanting to sometimes try and control everything because you are in the middle and you're trying to keep the people below you happy. You're trying to keep the people above you happy. And so there is a tendency in that situation to sometimes want to control. What are some of the risks that you see with that for middle managers? It's funny you say that because I've just been working with a whole, uh, a really quite a significant group of middle managers in a in a big um, brand company, and I see <laughs> there was forty incredibly passionate, driven, professional, highly educated control freaks. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, they absolutely wanted to control every element of everything that was going on to the point where they were they were actually stifling productivity, theirs and others, and they were getting in their own way of progress and they were getting in their way of um, their team's progress as well. And And let's be really abundantly clear, they were – None of them were negatively or harshly or maliciously intended. They were all there for the right reasons, trying to do the right thing. And so that needs to be really clear. But it's about how you look at what control means and the impact it it's having on people and um, the risks, I think, of trying to hold on so tightly is that you, you risk people stop uh, they're not going to speak up. They're not going to tell you things that are going wrong or right. Um, not going to come to you if they've got challenges. Um, if you're so controlling that you're the person that can't delegate, then why is anyone else going to bother to even ask if you need any mm-hmm. help? Um, then, you know, you end up being very lonely and carrying the burden. And even though that's the one thing that you're trying not to do, as an example. Yeah. I'm curious about whether 
when you're working with middle managers, do they understand generally that idea between the difference between control and influence? When we discuss it, yes. Like they, they, I think it takes a little bit to understand what, you know, control, the only thing you can control is yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and that takes learning too. You know, if we take emotional regulation, well, we've got to identify what our emotions are. Then we can move into the regulation so that we can then use that to then influence others, you know, mm-hmm. all for good, not evil <laughs> when we're influencing. <laughs> so I think one of the things that's really important is that when we, when we, when I do work with middle managers that we, we ask those questions, what is it that you really think you can control? And it's quite confronting and challenging. And, and I say, well, how's that working for you now while you're trying to control that other person? And how's it working for you now trying to control their emotions? And how's it working for you trying to control the environment so that empathy is coming towards you? And they're just looking at me and I'm going, yes, I'm being smart about it and I'm being picky. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, so I can't. And I'm like, there you go. That's right. So what we want to do is we want to focus on our business. I'm not going to worry about your business when it comes to understanding control, but I'm going to know that as a leader, I want to be Say, say, say I'm a leader who says that I want to be transparent. I want to be caring. I want to be empathetic. I want to be authentic. I want to, uh, be respectfully challenging so that I know that I'm pushing my people the right way so that they're growing. Uh, I want to be a really good delegator. That's my business. I can control all of that. But when it comes to your business, what I can do is, let you know what I expect of you so that you've got role clarity. Let you know that this is above the line and this is below the line in behavior. Let you know that I'm here to support you and I will listen. And um, I also want to know when you've got ideas or when things are going wrong before they've gone wrong or before they've really go pear-shaped. So they're the things that I, and we talk about those differences as being influential and being a good leader as well as those things that are totally within my control and the, the, those two different areas. And once they get that and I, and I put them in the position of being on the receiving end of what they're doing, um, which sounds like I'm teaching them a lesson of their own leadership, and it kind of is, but I don't do it in a mean way. I do it so they can actually really understand what it's like to be receiving their leadership. Mm. Then they get it. Yeah. Yeah. I love thinking about it in terms of it's an invitation. So when you move from control to influence, it's an invitation to get the type of response that you want. Mm. Mm. So thinking about how do you set up the situation, as you say, not in a terrible Machiavellian way, but in a really nice, supportive, positive way, let them know what you'd like, Mm. but um, give them some space to respond in their own way as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? When when people get it, they get it. You know, when they when they, you can see it in their eyes, you can see when the light goes on that goes, ho, oh, oh, no wonder this isn't working and I'm tired or I'm burnt out. And it's like, that's right. So let's take our hand off that hot plate and come back to our own business. Yeah. So most people do things with really good intent. Yes. And so if we... Think about that in terms of how we're delegating work. <laughs> if you have a tendency to be really helpful or, or a pleaser, not that I can you know, 
recognize myself in that at all. (laughs) (laughs) You want to be really helpful. So you think you're doing the right thing, actually giving people really, really clear instructions about how to do things. And unwittingly, you're actually stifling their creativity when you do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what would you suggest to a middle manager about how they could do it in a different way that gets the type of response that they're actually looking for? So I'm quite, when people want to know what's it like to work with Sally, I try to say I'm a mashup of Oprah and Erin Brockovich. So (laughs) would you like the Oprah answer or would you like the Erin Brockovich answer right now? Oh, can I go both? Okay. So the Oprah version of this is, well, darling, you need to learn how to delegate because let's face it, when we look at organizations, most of them, um, and there's a study that actually went out of all the organizations, 50% said they really value delegation skill. And then when they further studied those those organizations, only half of those actually did the training. So let's face it, no one's taught how to delegate. So that's an issue. So Oprah would say, here's a delegation course for you. Everyone gets a delegation course, right? Look under your seats, everyone. There's a delegation course. Now, Erin Brockovich answer. Yep. <laughs> how dare you get in the way of others developing themselves and learning? How dare you stand in the way of an opportunity for you as a leader to lift others and for you to be seen as the leader who lifts? Mm. So, you know, uh, to me, delegation is not just about getting more work done effectively. It's also about finding opportunities to raise everyone up. And as you raise, as you raise others, you're being lifted as well. Mm. You don't get left behind. You just cannot be left behind. And so I'm a, I'm a massive, you know, advocate, obviously wrote the book. I've got courses on delegation. But to me, it's, it's, it's a fundamental skill that is not being taught. And it's, it's also, it's almost like the, one of those skills that highlights how much middle managers are not developed because, um, a lot of the C-suite, and this is, again, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm throwing rocks, but this is just an example, right? Mm. A lot of the C-suite will say to their their middle managers, you, just go and delegate. You need to delegate more. You've got this, which is encouraging and it's an attempt at being empowering, but it's nowhere near enough. You, you're falling short of actually being truly helpful, and that is do you know how to delegate? What skills do we need to get you on board so that you can delegate? You know, like finish that process mm-hmm. is what I'm saying there. Um, don't stop being encouraging. That's great. But also encourage with practical outcomes. Um, so to me, I think, you know, those leaders and, and middle managers who say, oh, everybody's too busy, that's an assumption. Go ask and check. Mm-hmm. Um and if everyone's too busy, then where, why are you not having regular conversations about the prioritization of work? Um, they just won't do it to my standard. Well, then communicate your standard, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if they don't know, then you haven't articulated it. Yeah. A little bit of Aaron Brockovich coming at you right now, folks. <laughs> you know, like I'm in your face. So, you know, um, you've picked an interesting delegation with me there, Suzanne. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When you're in really complex environments, I know delegation can be quite challenging when you've got time pressures and other things because if you're trying to do 
what I'm hearing you say, which is seeing delegation as an opportunity to, to help people in your team grow. Yeah. And so that means sometimes when you delegate something, yes, they might not do it to your standard. And does that really matter? And when it does, have you actually built in enough time to actually give them the feedback and let them go away and have another go and learn some more? So it's really thinking about that context that you're in and are you creating an environment that enables people to feel safe to try, to have a go, and to maybe not quite hit the mark, but to see not hitting the mark not as failure but as an opportunity to learn something new and have another go? Uh, I think, you know, you know, failing is, is a useful lesson for all of us. You know, we, and it, no, no, very few people go out of their way to fail. So let's remember that as well. I think you've, 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 you've made this a complex example where you've just said this time, um, is an issue. Well, then I would question just how much you can delegate when time is an issue. You know, minimize, especially if you're not very good at delegating, that's not the time to learn how, you know, that's the time to act actually sit down and allocate work and be and I and like you said if you haven't um, talked about what standard you want it to and it doesn't work then is that a problem and my first answer to that is well yes because you actually need to talk about what your expectations are if you are not being clear at the front end then you're setting people up for failure and that's actually a reflection on you and harsh words I know but there's a little more Erin than there is Oprah right now. Um, so, you know, as she lifts, pushes her sleeves up to get right into it. Um, so I think one of the biggest things is uh, particularly when you have a complex situation, slow is fast. We often get uh, triggered emotionally and get excited and the adrenaline pumps and we want to get into something fast. But what happens is we don't slow it down enough to think clearly enough to then plan enough to actually make sure that the first actions we take are the right actions. Mm -hmm. Because one of the classic examples that I give is that you give someone a task and you're having this exciting banter about it because you want them to come on the journey and you know that they can do it and you think you're being clear and you send them on their way and then they go back to their desk and they sit there and go, hang on, what? Um, (laughs) Huh? I didn't, you know, because it hasn't fully been set up for success. And again, was that leader even trained in how to delegate? Probably not. And so I truly believe that we could all do with slowing down a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of this complexity that, that we talk about, unless you're in the emergency room in a hospital or you're an ambulance driver driving to the accident and it's a triple O, like a, an absolute triple O, 911, whatever your country's code mm-hmm. is for an emergency, unless it's that, then you can slow down. And you mm-hmm. can, you don't need to argue that point with me because I know you can slow down. Mm-hmm. And give yourself and your team the, the gift of a little bit of um, – slowness so that you can think. One of the things I often say to a lot of middle managers is um, uh, the way you race is the way they pace, mm. Mm. you know, and so you, you're you the one as a leader that's, that's actually role modelling the frenetic 
way people are thinking and then managers then complain because oh my staff can't get it right and they're doing this and they're doing that and I'm like well you're actually role modeling a little bit of this yeah and here how we were talking about influence and everything as well it also makes me think of the when you are like that you risk everyone wanting to reach agreement with you too quickly because you've created an expectation of we need to do things at a certain pace we don't have time for that Whereas often conflict about task, not about people, but conflict yep. about task yep. and taking the time to really explore some of that can actually enable some much better ideas, better approaches, better outcomes to be achieved. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's as a leader, if you can in the lead up to actually starting a piece of work around something that is complex and in, and you as the leader may have an abundance amount of experience mm. that you can draw on for this new thing even, you, you know, you're not starting at zero. The, you know, the task might be brand new but you're not starting at zero. You've got experiences. But what is it when it comes to like your point about making sure the team are inputting, mm. where's your beginner's mind? Yes. You know, the question of, now, now that we've got this far with this, what don't we know? What questions have we not asked? What's going to blow up in our face first? You know, anything like that that gets mm. the team to think differently about what it is. You know, I don't know. Even if you're, um, even if you're online on a Zoom or a Teams call, then okay, just for two seconds, everyone stand up. You know, like shift your physicality and go. Okay, now. <laughs> Now that we've moved and we're looking at this project metaphorically differently, yes. what is it we can't see? You know, yeah. um, just that I think would be hugely beneficial. And what would other people think about this? So really making sure you don't fall into that trap of only looking at it in terms of this is what our team thinks. Yeah. Yeah, and I think leaders, particularly middle, well, a lot of leaders think they have to have all the answers because they're in a position of power or authority to some degree. And I will challenge that and say, yes, to some degree you do because you'll have to say yes and no to certain things, but you don't have to have the answer. You just have some, have to have some pretty neat questions. And actually, they don't have to be all that good, but you do have to ask them. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, what don't we know? That's not exactly a brilliant question, but it's also a brilliant question, if you know what I mean. I think I don't think it's just a brilliant question. I think it's an essential question, Sally. <laughs> and that's it. It's it's not genius, but it's so often not asked. Don't leave it inside. Bring it out to the team, um, yeah. because what what it does is it it says to the team, "I value your skill and ability." You know the company's employed you because you've got a skill and ability we're giving you money periodically because of your skill and ability let me leverage that yes (laughs) let me get a return on our investment (laughs) and how do you think that shifts or how do you see that shifting when people are moving from working with their team that's reporting up to them to actually reporting up to their direct report yeah, um, uh, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We've got to shift our communication ever so slightly in some ways. I see that when we are um, engaging with our team, um, we've got to inform and inspire. We've got to we've got to do the why. We've got to say this is why we do this work, and and this is the information you need for this work. And you've got to you've got to communicate in a way that helps them come along on that journey. And then when we're going up 
the the line. I think there's informing as well, what's going yes. on, but influencing. Mm. You know, we're 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 communicating up the line to help influence de- strategic decisions. So I think there's that slight difference of inspiration versus influence, but both are informing. Then, you know, comparing that to when you're in your management team, I think that's a, a collaborative communication. Yeah. How can we do this together? Where are we leveraging our, our strengths? What resources can we pool and, and work mm. with? Mm. And I suppose when you're managing upwards too, it's making sense of what are those broader parameters that you need to work within what are those things that are important to up above and how do you then need to communicate that to the team or respond in a way that, um, I mean, most managers want to feel that their their boss has confidence in them, but being very aware when you come to the self-leadership piece about whether that's actually getting in your way of doing your job well, that whether you actually – are behaving in a way which is about being seen to be on top of it versus actually focused on getting the job done well and then choosing, like we talked about before, selectively choosing when it's good to be vulnerable and actually Mm. say, actually, we don't know the answer to that question or we need more time or we could do this bit but then we'd need to come back and review it if time is of the essence. Yeah, and I think it's quite a, a a knock-on effect in a lot of ways in that the senior leaders will be asking their middle managers to implement strategy, but then at the same time as that middle managers and, and team leaders and frontline leaders are getting people to action those things, well, the frontline are sitting here going, well, you, you're giving me more work, tell me what to prioritise which is the same thing as the middle managers need to say up the line, okay, we've got more strategies to implement. Well, which one's the priority? So it's actually not different. It's just slightly, you know, the the issue is the same. It's just the language is slightly different. Yes. Um, and so to, to your point about, um, you know, this confidence piece, you know, yes, a lot of middle managers might think that the C-suite don't see them as having confidence, but in actual fact, they do. Like the majority of senior leaders who engage me to work with their middle managers, actually <laughs> what we talk about is I don't know how else to give them permission. Yes, yes. You know, I don't know what else to say to those middle managers to let them know permission granted. And so there's a great line, and I think it came from Meg Wheatley, where, where it was proceed until apprehended, you mm-hmm. know, Um because you're not stupid, we trust you, we're employed you to do the job, so mm. get on with it. Um, but I think that there's a little bit there, which is why just recently I've been doing a lot of work with getting the C-suite and the B-suite to actually come together and act like an A-team. And so um, it's almost getting the C-suite to just tweak their comms just that little bit more so that they're being even more clear about and their role modeling that permission granted. Mm. And some of the permission granted, some of the clients I'm working with at the moment are people where the C-suite has referred them because they are so focused on doing a good job that they're probably working much harder than they need to to actually do that and that's impacting on their well-being and they're assuming they're not doing it well enough 
to actually meet expectations. And so it's helping people understand how you can actually do that, but be more kind to yourself and your team at the same time. It doesn't mean that you can't don't have to deliver anymore. You can mm-hmm. still deliver, but you can deliver in a better way. Absolutely. And I think that's the, you know, culture, the way we do things around here, um, the perceived expectations versus the real expectations, yes. the lack of communication because everyone's perceiving themselves to be too busy. You know, you can see how everything just piles on that if we just pulled back a couple of those, those pieces and started with communicating more about what is permission and what is, what is the standard we're looking for. And yes. made sure we had a lot more role clarity um, from from all the way through the organisation. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd have people meeting expectations and probably meeting expectations with less effort and stress, and therefore have more energy to then go the extra mile. Mm. So investing that time up front pays off in a lot of different ways. Slow is fast. I love this. This is a um, a Stephen Covey principle out of his, you know, it's a the most ridiculously, incredibly smart book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, you know, this this concept of slowing down at the beginning and setting yourself up for success and and um, it just makes everything else roll out with much, with much less risk of problems and issues and backfire. Mm. Mm. So, Sally, I'm really curious, what does thriving and complexity mean to you? Oh, I don't. Th- I think thriving in complexity is not about avoiding complexity. It's also not someone who walks around going, oh, "I eat complexity for breakfast every day," because um, good luck with that. You'll get your, t- your teeth chipped. Um, but but it's more around seeing complexity as the opportunity to do a few things. The first one is to learn. Mm-hmm. You know, this is an opportunity to learn and grow and stretch myself. And then the other one is this is an opportunity to put into practice what I do know. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about this new issue you've just thrown at me, but let me go into my toolkit because I've been on the planet long enough that I've got a couple of things that I could have a crack at. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I could have a go at it because I'm not completely clueless and I'm not completely skillless, even though what you're throwing at me, I've never seen before. And I think that's one of the things when we come back to that control issue as well. And the way in which we look at complexity is that I might not know what this is. I might not be able to control what this is, but I can sure as hell bring everything I've got in my toolkit to handle it. And I'm confident if it's not in my toolkit, I can go find it. Well, it's also about how can I use those things in my toolkit perhaps in a different way? Mm. Yeah. So, and how can I combine that using my toolkit with learning? And with the with the resources around me, and I'm not trying to make humans just assets, but there are people around you. You know, you've got people in your team who you may not even know would would actually eat that complexity for breakfast because mm. they're so good at it. They love it. It's their thing. It's their jam. And because you're the leader, you've gotten in the way of them having an opportunity to yes. showcase how good they are. So, yeah. Yeah. So, Sally, you've also been a manager yourself. You've been a CEO. Mm-hmm. Have you ever been faced with a complex situation that afterwards – you wished you had managed it a little bit differently. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. There was a situation where um, 
when I the minute I stepped into the the role, so I was appointed on a Friday. It was an internal promotion, and on the Monday, the one of the admin officers said to me, "Now that you're the CEO, can we fix this?" So that tells you what the culture was like um, beforehand. Um, and I thought, could I have my coffee first, <laughs> please? Um, and it was the beginning of about an 18-month journey to tidy up a major part of the risk that we had to manage for the organisation. And what we thought started out as just being a state-based thing ended up being a national thing and – it just got more and more complex, absolutely more and more complex. And what I wish I had done differently was not get as involved. Once once it tipped into the, the board and the national level, I should have stepped back more mm-hmm. and allowed that to happen because – it wasn't an area of expertise for me. I could have still been involved and learnt along the journey and um, and I felt as though when I look back on it now, I took my hand off the, the wheel of my state and in a few things and so um, not so bad that everything fell apart but I just know that I could have done a little bit better and mm. I think what – underpinning all of that, the lesson for me, because I was one of the youngest CEOs in the organisation ever, um, was uh, slow it down. Yeah. Everything had to be just I'm not a patient person, never have been, and it is and can be my superpower, but at the same time with maturity, it's my superpower. But Mm. back then being very young and green and a new CEO, um, it was not a superpower. It was super dangerous. And um, I'm lucky nothing too untoward happened. But I would tell my younger self and when I I look at that situation now, I would slow it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would stop those around me getting all who were getting – frustrated by the lack of progress at the speed they wanted, I would actually explain to them, this is complex and we need to get it right. This is the conversation we need need to now have. Um, Yeah. yeah. Mm. So is there any other advice you'd give your 25-year-old self? Oh, slow down. You're not, you're not a, hey, you're not a, you know, emergency room doctor. So, so stop acting like one. Yes. And, and remember at every step of the way that, like I said before, the pace at which you race sets the pace for everyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you are observed like, like you wouldn't believe. It's quite freaky and a bit creepy just how much your people watch you. And take their cues and clues from you as a leader. So um, it's important that that you are very much, and you're, you know, it's not just what you say, but it's what you do. Mm. You know, and remember that they're they're learning how to operate in this team based on how you're operating. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if people remember only one thing from our conversation today. Must they be sure to remember? Oh, that I'm hilarious. <laughs> um. <laughs> you can be, Sally. I can attest to that. <laughs> I, can be some, I can be some things and funny might be one of them. Um, <laughs> I just I think it's you don't have to have all the answers and 
in a lot of ways, having really good questions is actually your strategy and your strategic superpower and it is your answer. When you have, when you ask more questions, you invite your people to think more. You invite your people to step up and shine and give their best so that you're actually getting the return on the investment of employing them. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to have all the answers. And I think what we haven't already said this before, but it's just reminded me now that when we ask questions as the leader, we, we are actually in control of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Even though we may be speaking less, the asker of the question is the one that controls the conversation. So you're still in control, but you're not out of control. You're actually, everything's under control. Mm. And if you take, if we talk, go back to what we talked about, about authenticity and about being yourself with more skill, it's asking questions, but really thinking about how you frame those questions to get the type of responses that you want from people. So are you asking questions in a way that encourages your team to get into a really good thinking space where they're really tapping into that rational part of their brain or are you asking questions in a way that is triggering something in them that's making them feel defensive and and stopping them from responding in the way that you want? So there's the opportunity for you to control the environment that you're creating. Objection, Your Honour, they're leading the witness. Yeah, (laughs) precisely. Yeah, I think, yeah, 100%. Um, And this is where I think as leaders, if you are able to read the room, and this is an emotional intelligence piece, back to self-leadership, if you're able to read the room, and yes, you can do it on camera um, if you're on camera with, with your team, and please encourage them to be on camera. I know it's not always easy. Um, but if you can read that around the perception of what people might have of your communication and your leadership, if you can actually pick up on that, then, yeah, you can change your questions up so that you're actually creating a safe space for people to think. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do that, then do an emotional intelligence assessment. Do a 360 and do a proper one that gets a proper debrief. Don't do a freebie off the internet because um, that will just land you in hot water. But get a real proper one where you actually get that feedback because when you can – when you truly know the impact of your leadership, then you're in that position to then be able to um, switch up the way you ask those questions and create mm. that space. And by managing yourself, you're actually influencing the type of outcome that you want to get. Great leadership starts from great self-leadership. It does. Sally, thank you so much for the conversation today. If people would like to connect with you, how can they do that? Uh, there's only one of me on the planet, which might be a blessing. So um, just Google Sally Foley Lewis and um, you can find my website there or um, you can stalk me on LinkedIn. I'd love to Fantastic. connect. <laughs> Sally, thanks so much for all of that um, very useful insights and tips that you've shared for people today. And so if you're not a middle manager, but you're leading middle managers, hopefully you've got some new insights as well into what it is like for them and how you can support them to be successful. Sally, thank you so much. Suzanne, it's been complex and fun. (laughs) Thank you, Sally. Thanks for listening. 
If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time. Thank you.